The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, good morning. Now we are going to get started. Uh, my name is Ron Brooks. I am so excited because uh, we have a truly virtual audience. We have folks in Zoom. We have folks in Clubhouse. And I'm going to be like, a, I'm, I'm like I'm running for political office. There are somewhere between 50 and 700 people in this room. Uh, pro pro probably closer to 50. Uh, but you can do, you can actually do anything now with good camera optics. Anyway, it's a full room. Thrilled to be here. Uh, and we are going to get started. So, uh, we, uh, my name is Ron Brooks. I'm going to introduce, uh, have our panelists introduce themselves in just a second, um, just to kind of set the stage a little bit. Ron? This session is called, yeah. I do have C continuing edu education codes I need to read at the start and at the end of the meeting. So the code is as follows 18472. In a moment, I will, will repeat it one more time. Here we go. One eight one eight four seven two. Thank you, Ron. So th this this topic is called making the case for a more equitable paratransit future. And we're going to dive into what that looks like in just a moment. Um, my name is Ron Brooks. I am a longtime member of ACB. I am actually one of those people who joined ACB as the result of a scholarship back in 1990 before there was it was before there was ACB students we called it something else before there was DKM before there were first timers um, and I stayed involved in the organization through many states many chapters many committees and I also have spent that whole time just about uh, working in the transportation field uh, and I brought some of that experience to ACB and have served on our transportation committee. Uh, and I've gotten to know uh, some of these folks here uh, through that effort. So we're going to just talk about that in, in just a second. And um, what I'll tell you, and, and um, you know, one of those topics, speaker introductions and physical descriptions is still new in our community and a little bit. Some people like it, some people don't. Um, but when you hear how I look, you're going to love it. Um, or you're not. Um, and if it doesn't say, and if you don't think that this is true, then it's probably your seeing AI app is not working correctly. Uh, I am um, in, I am a, a white male Caucasian person in my, um, it doesn't matter how old I am. I have brown hair. If you see gray, remember you're all low vision. So it's probably wrong. Um, I have a white shirt, blue tie, and I'm wearing a silver a saxophone tie pin, which my daughter gave me. And so I will describe it every time. Um, and I'm the founder of uh, and CEO of a company called Accessible Avenue. I also work as the policy and stakeholder engagement director for a company called Userve. So, and we do uh, paratransit the right way. Anyway, uh, so um, we're going to have our panelists quickly introduce themselves and then I'm going to set the stage for a few minutes uh, to my right, Pat. Hi, my name is Pat Sheehan. I am very pleased to be here. I come from Silver Spring, Maryland, and I've been working in the or volunteering in the area of uh, um, Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority for about 30, 35 years. 
So mm-hmm. experience there. Um, we, I think we've made some good progress. This is going to be an excellent panel. I am a white Caucasian male. Uh, I have a gray suit, a white tie, and a, a white shirt, and I'm hoping that the tie matches. Uh, <laughs> I think it does. I checked with Ira yesterday. They said everything looks good. So pleased to be here. Uh, look forward also to what we have to say, but really looking forward to your questions. Thank you. All right, and to my left, Katie. Good morning. My name is Katie Frederick, and I am from. I have a fan club. club. All right. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. So you all are awake. That's awesome. Um, I am a white Caucasian woman wearing a sleeveless dress. Very chilly, I must say, in this convention center. Um, But happy to be here today. Um, hailing from Columbus, Ohio, where user rules. Um, so very happy about that. <laughs> and um, so looking forward to a great panel this morning. I will now pass the mic to Anthony. Welcome, welcome. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong show. Good morning. <laughs> I am Anthony Corona from Miami, Florida. Um, <laughs> thank you. Okay. I guess I have some fans too. That's nice. Um. <laughs> Um, I am a white Caucasian male in my mid to late 40s. Um, I am devastatingly good looking with black hair and green eyes. Um, (laughs) There were no cups left in the room this morning, so I didn't get coffee till I was down here. So I could not tell you what color my polo shirt is, but it's probably fat. It's pink, isn't it? Yeah, it's fabulous. And I'm wearing not one but two gold crucifix. You can ask me that story later on. And I'm so really happy to be on this panel. Some people just need a little extra help. That's what that's all about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Well, I am a welcome panel and welcome to all of you. You know, paratransit, somebody up here said it's the thing. What was it? We, uh, you know, we love it. We hate it. We need it. We wish we didn't. Whatever. But What we want to talk about today is really about paratransit, where it came from, where we're going with paratransit, and why it's time to start talking about paratransit um, in terms of an equity conversation and not just the the same old, same old of of what the law says, and we need that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the stage, and then we're going to engage our guests in what I'm going to call kind of a coffee kind of a coffee table conversation. Imagine if you will, because it's not here. Uh, uh, we're sitting on beautiful leather couches. We've got our beverage of choice in hand. I guess they're lattes because it's early. Um, five o'clock, so okay, mimosa, Bloody Mary, whatever. You do you. Um, and we're sitting around, we're just talking and that'll come soon. But I wanna set the stage a little bit first. So let me just start by talking. And a lot of people know this, but some of you, especially some of you who are a little bit you know, younger may not realize paratransit, you know, we think of paratransit as that, you know, what we have today. Paratransit has been around since the 1950s, uh, at least. And, and it really started um, not so much out of, a, out of the disability movement, but more out of the elder, older American space. And there was a time when agencies wanted to honor uh, folks who were older who needed help with transportation. And so cities would invest in cab service primarily back in those days. 
and provide service. And that evolved into this concept of paratransit. Back then, it was usually called dial-a-ride uh, because you dialed you know, on a phone, dial-a-ride. And in about 1973, there was this law passed, which Patrick is quite the expert on and probably others as well, called the uh, Federal Rehabilitation Act. And when the law was regulated in 1977 or so, there was a requirement for public transit agencies to make their services to basically not discriminate, discriminate against folks with disabilities. They used the H word back then. And the idea was it, they could do it however they wanted, but if they got federal funding, they couldn't discriminate. And there were really two approaches at that time. There was this idea of, of quote, paratransit or dial-a-ride, or you could like invest in making your transit system more accessible. And everybody could decide locally, but they had to do something. What most agencies did then was created local dial-a-ride programs, which they called paratransit, which basically looked a little bit more like what you see in most places today. A van running around, picking up people, dropping off people. Uh, back in those days, there was no software, so it was usually a dispatcher. Imagine Louis de Palma sitting in the cage over there in taxi, if you're old enough to remember, you know, putting pins on a board and picking people up and dropping people off. These were very, very limited services. They did not transport nearly as uh, during the same hours. They didn't serve the same areas. There were waiting lists, uh, but, the, but it was legal. That's how they did it. And other systems, a few that were more enlightened, focused on their fixed route rail bus systems. Uh, it, wheelchair lifts were invented in the 70s, basically. Um, so, so you started seeing those technologies coming into existence. Uh, very, very slowly in some cities. Thanks to a lot of protesting, uh, frankly, by the disability community and during the, uh, uh, primarily during the 80s, uh, these things became much more centered in the ADA. And the ADA basically, the intent of ADA was to establish transit services that were very accessible for people with disabilities based on what we knew back then. Um, there was also a focus on, uh, for those people who couldn't use it, to establish paratransit. At that time, the community did not like paratransit because what they were experienced with was really bad. They wanted accessible fixed route, bus, rail, trolley, streetcar service, um, but paratransit was a fallback. And so the law was written in a way that really, it's pretty, It's it, first off, it was negotiated. It was not this is not what the community said, we really want this. This is what transit and the community negotiated that transit would be willing and able to do in 1990, 91, 92, when the regulations were written. What's happened since then is that for the most part, and, and you know, this is a little bit debatable, but I'm gonna give you my interpretation, and I've been in the industry since 1993, so almost from the beginning, we've largely not changed the business model for paratransit. Technology has evolved in the industry. We now have cell phones. We now have uh, you know, most people, and it's, we estimate around 80% of people use smartphones at this point. That number, I wish we had better numbers that were a little bit more divided up by, by, by type of customer, but it's you know, generally. Um, so we have, we have cell phones, we have rideshare services, um, like the, the traditional services like Uber and Lyft. We have taxis. Uh, we have microtransit, which is basically service on demand inside of a, of a small service area 
where people can press buttons on an app, summon a vehicle, and it takes them where they want to go within as little as 15 or 20 minutes to up to an hour or two in advance. Uh, and yet, paratransit still runs largely in most cities the way that it ran in 1995 or 2000. You have, you schedule your trip the next day, at least. Uh, you wait for a 30-minute pickup window, typically. The vehicle arrives, you have five minutes to board. You, are, you will travel with either by yourself or with others. You won't know how many or how long your trip will be until you're in the vehicle. Um, and you get to where you're going whenever you get there. And that's largely how it works in most cities, even to this day. Some cities have started to change that. Uh, they've started to implement some newer technologies. They've started to play around with the model, partly to save on cost, uh, partly to stretch capacity, uh, but, but largely they've done it for their own reasons. And, and yet, we know that we can do better because we see other parts of the industry doing better. We see transit agencies providing commuters with microtransit service that they can request on demand and go immediately or almost immediately to where, to a, a pickup, you know, a point where they can connect to a rail system or to uh, a downtown central business district where there's lots of employment. We see agencies creating QR codes where you can get off of a train and request an Uber or a Lyft and be taken to, the, to your final destination. So the industry can do it. The question is, why aren't they doing it for paratransit? Um, so the purpose of this presentation is to feature places that are doing some different things. And there, there are certainly many cities that are nibbling at the edges and starting to do this. But it, to get us from where we are to that next stage, it is going to take significant advocacy because the law does not require it. The law allows transit to do what it already does in the places where it already is. Um, we need to understand that if we want service to be better, in most cases, it takes advocacy uh, and it takes effort and it takes local decisions that go beyond what the law requires. So what I want to do now is, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples, and then I'm going to invite our guests here uh, to start talking about what their cities are doing. Because in, in all three cases, uh, and I'd say two cases, the cities are doing things. And in one case, the city is going to, they haven't done it yet, but they are being pushed very hard. Uh, and I think the time will come. Here are some ways that paratransit today does not represent equitable service. And when I use the word equity, this word means a lot of things to a lot of people. But I'm going to give you my simple definition, and there are entire academic, you know, course material around what equity means. My definition, I'm from Indiana. I'm a simple guy. I have a really simple definition. Same amount of time, same level of effort, and same cost. If I can take a trip across town, which is what transit does, it gets us where we need to go, I should not have to take longer to plan it. I shouldn't have to take longer to take the trip. I shouldn't, it shouldn't be 10 times harder to plan the trip. And I shouldn't have to be paying twice as much to make that trip. And I speak directly to paratransit. As a, as a non-disabled person, I can walk out this door, board a bus that runs every 30 minutes or so, 
and go wherever I want to go in the Chicagoland area if I'm willing to pay the fare. If I want to do that on Pace Paratransit, which is a good paratransit system, it meets all the legal requirements of the law, I have to book that trip yesterday. That's one example. Here's another. If I want to go to downtown Chicago, except for traffic, it's probably a bad example, but I, the schedule is the schedule. It takes as long as it takes. We know how long it is. And 90 plus percent of the time, even accounting for traffic, that's how long my trip takes. If I want to take that trip on Pace Paratransit, since I have no idea when the vehicle will actually come because it comes in a 30 minute window if it's on time, and there might be one person, no people, or five other people on that vehicle, my trip might take anywhere from a half an hour to two and a half hours, and I have no way to predict it. No way. That's not equitable. And my trip will probably, unless, unless Pace has equal service, um, and I'm not picking on Pace, this is everywhere, folks. Uh, my trip may cost twice as much simply because I'm too disabled to use a bus, and that's wrong. That's not equitable. Equity says we, should be pay we shouldn't be paying extra, especially given that 70% of us don't have jobs. So these are the kind of things that, that I want to talk directly about. These are the things that we need to advocate for, and that's what this panel is about. So, um, Katie, just let's start with the basics. You already said kind of where you're from. Maybe talk just for a second about the transit agency that you work with or the paratransit provider uh, in your community and what what are they doing that's maybe a little bit different or a little bit above what, what the typical ADA paratransit system uh, requires? Absolutely. Well, thank you. So in Columbus, Ohio, we work with the Central Ohio Transit Authority, otherwise known as COTA. And they are the provider for of transportation in um, Franklin County, which is where Columbus, Ohio is located. And they are, um, I'm actually very lucky to live in a, in a city, in a metro area that is doing some innovative things. Um, they do have throughout the city, unfortunately not in my neighborhood, um, but maybe that will come, but we do have micro transit options. Um, I've heard from some people that, um, that use them some of my of my other of my friends who are who are blind or low vision have used this service successfully and it works well. So that's encouraging. So we have the micro um, transit options available to everyone. And if you have a disability, um, so micro transit in Columbus works that the bus picks up at a certain point and drops off at a at a point. But if you have a disability, they will come to the curb. Um, so you don't have to try to find the bus. So that's good. Um, we also have um, our our fixed route bus service, which runs throughout the metro area. And we have um, paratransit, which is provided as well. And that runs on some of the same principles that, that Ron talked about, about, you know, booking trips in advance and things like that. But we also have... Um, CODA, the transportation agency, has partnered with USERV. And so in the Columbus area, we are fortunate to be able to use USERV as more of a paratransit on-demand model where I am able to schedule a trip one hour in advance and I'm picked up in a, in a car similar to riding in Lyft or Uber. 
And sometimes I do get a Lyft driver actually. <laughs> um, but that that is the experience. You do pay a little bit more um, for this than your typical paratransit. It's about, um, I think it's up to like a dollar, um, ends up being about a dollar a mile for a ride. So some rides do cost a bit more, but I'm able and willing to pay that for more service that's, you know, one-on-one -on -one and more straightforward. Thank you. Let's go to Pat. Pat, talk about what your agency, and you talked about WMATA, what, what, what is happening in your neck of the woods? Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Yes. Um, so in Washington, D.C., we have a good fixed route. Uh, fixed bus system, subway system, and of course, paratransit. Um, the paratransit system is pretty large, 118,000 trips a month. So a lot of trips covering a, a pretty substantial area in Virginia, D.C., and in Maryland. So a lot of coordination also. Very complex system. Um, the We have a standard paratransit system, uh, which, as Ron describes, uh, picks you up and will take you to your destination. <clears throat> but we, um, our, our numbers were not great. Uh, it is very expensive. And the WMATA board was looking at ways in which they could save money. We, um, as a member of the Disability Advisory Committee, uh, we looked at how we could participate making transportation, particularly paratransit transportation, easier and uh, more efficient. One of the things we looked at was the cost of um, of this of what each ride would cost. In the Washington D.C. area, if you look at the cost of uh, dispatch of the drivers, vans, scheduling, and all of that. The cost was about $110 one way for a ride. So we were able to look at uh, using a separate service, one we're calling Abilities Ride, where you can be switched over to an Uber, a sedan, Lyft type vehicle. And currently we've been running that system for about two years. And that system is coming in at about $30 a ride. And so... It is a lot less expensive. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that $30 a ride, I don't pay for. So for me, it's free. So for me to switch over to this alternative system, which I opt into, is um, a free ride for me uh, for a very large service area. So <clears throat> what we have been able to create, and the reason I bring up the cost, is because it's important if you're going to advocate you want to take a look at creating a win-win situation. So the board of directors at Metro at WMATA, uh, they could have kept the old system. Uh, the, um, the fleet was there. The infrastructure was there. But we were able to articulate a way that they could save money $80 a trip, which came up to a huge cost savings of three, four $400,000 or whatever. And uh, we were able to take that and provide a better, more efficient system that worked for the passengers that opted in to use this other system and also help them because then they were able to cut down on individuals 
who were using the more expensive system. And oh, by the way, their numbers got better as far as on-time performance. And so even for paratransit drivers, they were able to meet their contract requirements and earn those lovely little bonuses that they earn. So I would say when you're thinking and listening to this panel today, uh, one of the things that you may want to ask is, how can we create that win-win situation? What is it that works for the um, transit property where you are? What are they interested in achieving? And sit down and talk to them about how to achieve that while also achieving your uh, certain goals also. There it goes. Okay. These microphones are a little funny up here. Um, Anthony, um, talk about your world um, in Miami. Thank you. All right. Well, I see how you structured this. Um, I'm from Miami, and I think Ron structured it this way because I, you know, I'm not quite new to the organization, but I definitely have not been marinating in this kind of advocacy as long as these fine folks next to me have. Um, and I think that the advocacy situation where I am in Miami is in the same position. Um, we have a service that's called Special Transportation Services. Uh, I like to call them shoddy, change that vowel, shoddy transportation services. <laughs> <laughs> Might rhyme with bitty, um, but anyway, um, we're in that model where you have up to seven days prior to book a trip. Um, you don't know what your trip is going to look like as all the things that Ron said. Um, and, and there are no, there are no alternatives. Uh, there's no Uber or Lyft backup. There's, there's no, and the way the County Miami is a beautiful place to live as far as I'll never have to shovel snow again. Um, but the fixed route systems are not good. Um, they're not good at all. And so, you know, the only, um, option for for getting to and from where you need to go in most cases not all there is transportation and you can get some places easily but for the most part you know your doctor's appointments your job interviews etc you can't rely on the on the fixed rail the fixed ride bus and the rail so you're stuck with the power the power transit um, we started doing some advocacy and I, I'm sure Ron wants me to get into that later, but we're at the infancy stage. And unfortunately we're in the kind of city where it's the good old boy system and special transportation services in various names has been there since the beginning. Um, and they know how to work the system and they have been working it really, really well. It's really lucrative for them. And quite frankly, they don't care about the population that they're serving. Um, it's been made evident and you can read about it in the Miami Herald <laughs> if you so choose, but that's kind of where we are now. We've made a few advances and we're really putting a pressure campaign on, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little yeah. while. And actually, Anthony, the reason that I included you is precisely for this, because most communities um, at this stage are not advanced into the places where Columbus and WMATA are trying to get to and other agencies. And, and by the way, I do want to set the record straight. You know, I, I was using PACE as an example. PACE actually is one of those systems that's making some investments in some different service models. Um, so it, you know, it is happening in a lot of places, but Miami really represents more. <laughs> Here you go. Okay, I'm back on, but okay, this is a funny mic. 
Uh, maybe the folks in Miami are controlling this. I don't know. Um, so, hey, hey, so, but let's stay. Let, let's go ahead and stay with Anthony um, because this is why I included you. I wanted you to talk about, you know, what you, you all in pretty short order have made an impression uh, you've taken paratransit from the back halls to the to the front couple of pages of the Herald, and I think even above the fold. Talk talk about what you've done to create that level of engagement, which really is, I think, essential. And then after you, I'm going to reframe this question for Katie and Pat to kind of go a little bit in a different direction. But talk about the the start of the process that you all have engaged in Miami. The blind passing of the mic. <laughs> All right. So um, when I got. Pass this one down. All right. We're trying. Is it? Am I on now? Okay. So when I got to Miami, I was coming from New York City. And I will not say that Accessoride in New York City is a perfect system, but it is. Folks, we're on the third of three. <laughs> All right. For you in Miami who's trying to make shut me up, I will never shut up. <laughs> so I had a great New York experience as far as tra uh, power trans para transit is concerned. I got to Miami and I kept hearing, oh, we tried this. We've done this. It's never going to change. They're in bed with the county. Nothing's going to nothing's going to happen. Well, I don't really like those kind of phrases. Those those put a bug in my bonnet, a bee in my bonnet, whatever that phrase is. And so I started talking to our community and reaching across to other communities, the wheelchair community, the deaf and the deaf community, um, and uh, the assisted living communities as well. Because you know we're all in the same boat. We all need to do what we need to do in a timely manner, equitable, equitably. So the approach that we decided to go with and and we tried a bunch of different things we tried having meetings with them we tried um you know making all of the complaints and and bringing it up to the county line what we decided to do was find a data point that would work that when you know when you present data it's irrefutable either you have a 95% on time rate or you have a 65% on time rate. Those numbers are what they are. Now they can be skewed by, you know, shoddy transportation services, and they often are. And the process of getting that data um, from the company and from the county proved to be quite daunting. Um, at one point, they were trying to charge us $1,700 for, um, you know, for records. That was... <laughs> That was a lot of conversations that did not go well for the county. Um, but then we decided to create our own data. Um, so we, cr we created a system of filing complaints. Um, and my chapter, the Miami Beach Council of the Blind, all really decided we're, gonna, we're all in. We're going to do this. We partnered with other chapters in Miami. Um, and like I said, we reached across disability communities. And um, thanks to the help of my incredible partner, Gabriel, we collated over 700 complaints in a four month period. And that data point, those data points were irrefutable. 
we then partnered with um, an organization and every state has one. Um, their names may change, but ours is the Florida Center for Governmental Accountability. And they take those data points and turn it into reports that go to all of the local representatives and ding, 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 the media. And so we sat down with uh, the county again and basically let them know what we were doing. And they thought, oh, these folks have done this 100 times. It's not going to amount to anything until the Miami Herald article actually came out. And, um, you know, I love reading that article because the way the writer structured it was presenting our case with two test, you know, two user case scenarios, myself and um, one of our intrepid members who is not only very low vision, but also um, in a motorized scooter. He has mobility issues, co-mobilities, um, and he is absolutely incredibly amazing. He's strong and he was willing to put his story out there as I was willing to put mine. And the way they structured that article was to talk about us, then to get quotes from both special or shoddy transportation services and the county. And the answers that you got back were so tone deaf. Um, so when I read that article, I was jumping up and down and overjoyed. Unfortunately, one article doesn't change very much. Where we are right now is they've instituted, and a lot of you already know you, your systems are using this, and I was very well aware of it because of New York. They've instituted will call for all um, medical appointments. They've changed the, the times. So it's now from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we have a 12-hour window that we can reach someone. They added the county itself, not the transportation company, added their own 24-hour dispatch to override what's happening in the system. Now, along the way, they offered me a whole lot of perks. Let me give you a number that if something's happening, you can call and we'll get you a car within 10 to 15 minutes. I said, oh, great, great. Now, my whole chapter and my whole community can use this number, right? Oh, no, no, that's just for you, Mr. Corona. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we are actually slated to um, speak at our first uh, county commissioner meeting. Um, and so when I, you know, lay that out on the floor, I'm sure that that's going to receive a, a very uh, hearty response. And I'm sure that will put the leg over the edge to pull the trigger on the second Miami Herald article. So we've seen some um, we've seen some improvement with these changes. They've also promised us overfull cars and things that have not happened yet. Um, and so that second Miami Her Herald article, I'm hoping is as, as long with the advocacy of going to commissioner meetings and banging on the doors of our city representatives will, you know, will force them to make even further changes. I do want to say one thing before I pass the mic back, and this is not an easy process. It requires a lot of patience, which I am not good at, a lot of time and a lot of data collection. If you do not have the data points, you do not have an argument. So I'm going to pass with that. I'll pass it back. And thank you. Yep. Perfect. And I'm going to actually capture as we go. So Pat, um, he gave a point to basically create a win-win. So I want you to hear these because we're going to, you know, just, I want you to have things to walk away with. And Anthony just talked about the importance of story and data. Uh, those are, those are important things. And we can dig into those a little bit later, maybe, but let me just turn now to uh, first, um, Pat, and then and then we'll go over to Katie. Um, and, and here's the way I'd like to phrase this, because your agencies, your cities are kind of moving in a more 
you know, you're a little bit farther along the journey, it, getting agencies to do things that they're not required to do. And then in many cases, they're not funded to do um, is not an easy task. How did your communities go about creating, you know, that and, and Pat, you addressed this to some extent. So, um, but, but if there's anything else you'd like to add around getting your agency committed to doing the right thing. And then Katie, the same question for you. We'll start with Pat. I'm happy to answer that question. And the first thing I would say to everybody is get involved in your transportation system. Uh, as Anthony said, you're going to move slow. Uh, you're going to want to develop the relationships and the trust. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, and I think that when you have those discussions, uh, that's important. When you're on a committee, I've been on one for about 30 years, you're at a different place than, let's say, when you're advocating out on the street because you're building those relationships and the trust is very important. So that's something that everyone can do. When you go into something like that, you don't need to be the expert because you're going to learn about your environment and what works and what you have as far as resources. That's very important. The other thing that it works very well with paratransit is having a good fixed route system. I have seen them take out bus systems, compromise bus systems, uh, pull them back because um, the bus systems, uh, you know, they're expensive, whatever. And then when they do that, they can legally cut paratransit. So the other thing to advocate for is a good fixed route bus system because paratransit is based on that. The third thing that Anthony said that I think is absolutely critical, another boring thing, are metrics. What get measures gets done. I was absolutely thrilled this year when we started looking at, I don't care if you call them performance key indicators, objective or key results, you have a, a number that you need to meet are you going to meet that number? Is it going to be up or down? And so when they look at the fixed route system, they say, oh, on-time performance for bus, on-time performance, let's say, for rail, and where's metro? Where's your paratransit? Is that going to be reported too? And so you measure that. You indicate how that's being done. If that's done before a board of directors group, that is going to be key because then you're going to be holding those people accountable as to you're down this month, you're down last month, you know, what are you doing as far as meeting your goals and your objectives? So those things are dry, but it's important to be able to have a track record to take a look at the system. And of course, Anthony also is correct. When you talk to directors, when you talk to professionals, it's good to have those things in mind to know what things cost, to have the numbers and the metrics and all. But what really resonates to them as, as people are the stories. Having the stories of the impact, what's going to happen when you don't get a, your ride, your personal stories, they actually, on the day-to-day -day business, make the most difference. Uh, they have the best impact, but also having the data behind you, knowing what your system has in front of it as far as um, bus and rail, how the paratransit set is set up and what it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be acting and, you know, what it's on time performance is, is critical. All of that takes time. And so you don't walk in there first day or first week and um, indicate that uh, you're the expert. So uh, get involved, um, uh, build the relationships, 
understand what you're talking about and and be patient because it, it does take a while. But remember that you're affecting not only just you, but you're affecting the entire community around you because transportation is worth it. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Those are all great points and I know we'll dive in. Katie, what would you add uh, from your perspective in Columbus? So I think one thing that we did in Columbus is, is we are in a unique position in that we have, we are the state capital. We have a large university institution. You may have heard of the Ohio State University. Um, it's a very, you know, we have, we have a lot of, a lot of government. We have um, university. So we have a large number of people coming into Columbus, right, for work and for other opportunities. We have a very large group of young professionals who come to Columbus for college end up getting end up getting jobs in the city and staying in the area. One of the things that we did in the in the area, a couple of things is that we are um, we are experiencing a major growth um, spurt. And so by 2050 our population will will likely double. And um, we need to do we need to do a lot more with our infrastructure because we don't have rail very sad face up here. Um, we, we have, we do have, um, fixed route, uh, transit, but we need to do, need to do more in that space. But one thing that we did is we have what's called the mid Ohio regional planning commission or MORPSI, and they undertook a transportation study of the region and really made a concerted effort to reach out to the Ohio affiliate of the American Council of the Blind and, you know, said, we're trying to get, you know, trying to get data. Can you help us get this, this, you know, again, back to data, um, these stories so that we can put forward a case for, you know, we, we need to expand transit. We need to make transit more user-friendly. Um, we also had an, an initiative in Columbus um, called Smart Columbus, and that was an investment from um, city and private companies um, to really utilize technology in the city. And so Columbus just as a whole is a very um, forward thinking, you know, city, our government and council is very supportive of initiatives that are, you know, tech focused. Um, we have uh, a factory, Intel is, is coming in the area with, you know, their chipsets and things. So we're very, you know, forward looking that way. Um, so I think, you know, getting, getting that data um, involving the the disability community, as we've talked about, is is really key. And then also, you know, again, as as those of you sitting sitting in the audience, um, you know, getting involved with your transportation agency, joining their disability um, committee if they have one, or participating in your um, city's committee on disability issues. Um, these are all things that you can do to help not only tell your story and share your experiences, but those of others around you in the community. Excellent. So I'm going to ask one more question of each of our panelists, and then we're going to open this up. Um, but I did want to just capture a couple of things uh, that, that Katie said. She talked about serving on committees and advisory committees. And, and I'm actually going to double down on that and say one of the things that we as a community need to do better and, and it takes work. It takes a lot of relationships. And Katie talked a lot about all of these other groups of people in Columbus, uh, the university, uh, the business community, um, groups that have influence is two things. One that occurs to me is building partnerships with other organizations. And Anthony talked about that a little bit. 
The other thing I want to tell you is that don't limit yourself to the advisory committee that advises on paratransit. Paratransit policy, right down to how much service is provided, what the fares cost, uh, who the provider is in some cases, how the service is designed, those are board decisions at the local level. They are The law sets the minimum standards, but local boards make those decisions. Get on those boards. It's hard. Those are often political appointment positions. Doesn't mean you can't have them. And I know that I know disabled people who serve as board members in the transit industry. And guess what? Their agencies tend to be a little bit more progressive uh, than some other agencies. So, you know, th this is something, this is what we can learn from the larger uh, community of, of people of color, uh, people in minority communities. They have done a very good job at, at, at creating a conversation around equity. And part of that conversation is nothing about us without us, which by the way, is a disability community phrase. We need to own that. We need to get in the positions of, of decision-making. And, um, um, you know, and that, by the way, it needs to extend to the industry too, which is something that I'm working on in my industry days. But, but I just wanted to emphasize that we are not limited to serving on people's advisory committees for disabled people. We can do more. Um, I want to close with one other question, then we're going to open it up. So just quickly, um, I'm going to start with Pat, and then we'll just go Pat to Katie to, to Anthony. You've all been very involved in ACB uh, chapters, or uh, in, uh, two of you have served on the ACB Board of Directors. Uh, Katie's done all kinds of stuff, including the BOP uh, and the board, and God knows what's going to be in the future. What what can ACB as an organization do and what should ACB do to help local chapters and members um, who are individuals because transit is a local issue, maybe more than any other. What can ACB do to better support, train, hold accountable uh, and, and get these transportation issues happening at the local level? We'll start with Pat. Oh, good, good question to answer uh, for the final question. Um, I think the best thing that we can do uh, is to uh, share our experiences on community calls. I think that's number one. Uh, there are things that, that I have done in Washington, D.C. that could possibly work within your organizations uh, and, and environments. But as Ron says, transportation is local. So some of the things that I uh, have, perhaps you don't have. Maybe you don't have a rail system. Maybe it's just all bus. So, so there are things that we can do to work with you to show you what we've done and how we've done it. Talking, talking about metrics, boring, but it's important. Talking about building those relationships. Does your group whatever it is, do, who do they report to? Can they report to a higher organization? When I started out, we just reported to the director of paratransit, and now we report to the board of directors. We report to the board of directors at, in Washington, D.C., because we have been able to give them value. And what does value look like in Washington, D.C., as opposed to what does value look like where you are? And that's what we need to try to create is to, to listen to what where you are, listen to your circumstances, and try to create that win-win situation, either by relationships, by data, 
by um, saving money because we can do it another way. And those are the arguments that I think it worked in, in our organizations uh, to a degree. And perhaps some of those strategies can work in your organizations, in your hometowns. I think that that experience is something we can share. Thank you. All right, excellent. So you're, just to sum up your answer, you think that the best thing that ACB can really help local chapters and individuals with is, is really creating as, a, as essentially a repository and a mechanism for sharing information across the organization. Okay, excellent. Katie. Sure. So I think information sharing is good, but, you know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, gosh, I'm really, you know, I've not, I, what, what does it mean to be an advocate, right? What, how, how do I, how do I join that board that Ron says I should join? How do I, how do I get started? What, what do I do now? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's looking at, um, you know, what, what's around in your community. Maybe it's maybe, you know, one of the things that we do in Columbus and, and, you know, Ron said, I wear a couple hats. Well, I'm going to add one more. I was president of our Columbus chapter. And one of the things that we do, and we still continue this is we have speakers at our monthly, monthly meetings. And so some, many of our speakers are often people from the community. So we've had people in, we've had, you know, council members, we've had um, people from the mayor's office, we've had, um, people talking about accessible sports and we've had people in from, from Coda. That's been fun. Um, we have, you know, we've really tried to engage. We've let them know our issues, our concerns, our, our, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? The, you know, what's working well, what's not. And to, to their credit, they've been open to that. Have they always listened? No. Do we still have work to do? Absolutely. But that, that doesn't end, right? That's, that's always going to be there. So I think, you know, one of the things to to consider is um, at the local chapter level. You know, how do you you know making those connections with with the with folks in your community, getting out there, um, paying attention to to the local news. Anthony mentioned, you know, we are our media, local media still exists. Um, you you can still get that local news. You know, NPR is great in my opinion. Um, you know, providing that local news content. Um, but it really is important to know what's happening in your area, know about future projects coming up. Oh, there's going to be a new development in that space. You know, I wonder, you know, how can we make sure that accessibility and transportation and equitability is thought of at the forefront? What a concept, right? Thinking of it at the beginning stages of a project. So I think these things of, you know, realizing what's happening in the community and you know getting getting involved you know going to going to council meetings writing writing letters to your to your editor of your paper all of these things have an impact it does take time it's not always easy but i think you know think it really can be done and can really impact everyone in the community thank you anthony all right, if you'll um, allow me, I just want to piggyback on the last thing you said for the previous question, um, especially for folks that find themselves in the stage that Miami is in, where it's the beginning of the advocacy. It is so paramount. We are a tiny percentage of a small part of a marginalized group. And so when you really look at it and you try to, to you know, have these meetings and have these conversations, it's, oh, you're point, point, point of a percent of this 
So you really do need to do that coalition building at the beginning stages. You really do need to reach across. And the old adage that, you know, they're not going to fight for the things that we need. Well, if no one's fighting for anything, then no one's getting anything. And that's that was something that we really had to drill into our community, you know, our community members in Miami. Um, as far as the question at hand, uh, I want to do I want to break it up into two different things. Um, I think first something that we do that we do well is if somebody reaches out for and you know take a look at take a look at the list if somebody reaches out for information it's almost instantaneous that you start getting the responses this is how it works in the bay area this is how it works in you know north dakota this is how it works in texas and you'll get plenty of responses and so you know my major kudos to the american council of line members is we step up we help each other. We're there for the most part. You know, there are some that aren't, but, you know, whatever. Um, so I want to highlight that. And if you have a question, go to the subject matter experts within the organization. Um, on the flip side of that, if you have information, bring that to the subject matter experts in the organization. What I think the American Council of the Blind could do a lot better, and it's a global thing. It's not just for transportation. We pull out advocacy twice a year. Um, you know, and we throw all in for about three months, we get ourselves prepared, we get ready, we make appointments, we learn those imperatives back and forth, we learn all the data points that go with it, etc. And then we go about the rest of our year. And that's the that's the downfall. That's the part that's biting us back in the old rear end. We need to be training our members how to advocate how to um, turn the personal, how to marry the personal stories with the data points, how to turn the personal stories into effective conversation talking points. Because it's one thing to tell the story about how you got stranded a mile away from where you thought you were supposed to be, and then be able to tell that story succinctly with the most impact, and then take you know an email, a piece of paper, whatever it be, with all the data points that correspond to it. And it's like, what happened to me? happens 12% of the time across this county, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that the, you know, the organization as a whole, we need to kind of go back to the basics and start mentoring up, training up, engaging, inspiring up folks into, you know, the personal relationships on a day-to-day -day basis in your local areas, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis on your statewide, and, you know, and more than once or twice a year on the national level. We really need to invest in member training. And I, you know, I know that that sounds like, oh, nobody wants to go back to school. But if we want to be effective in what we do, we need all the tools in the toolbox and a couple that don't fit in the box. Yep. So, so that, that is, um, yeah, you can clap for that because that's really good. But I want to add to it. So, so let me, let me layer, let me make this because what I think what Anthony said is, is a really, really good point. The ACB is really good at national level advocacy. Uh, and we've talked, we talked about a lot of it last night, uh, some of the successes that we as an organization have had where the ACB, I think, and, and I'm also, by the way, I mean, I've been in ACB since 1990. Um, we, I think were better in the past at state and local advocacy. This has gotten harder and transportation is a local issue. 
Now, there is federal advocacy that the ACB can does and that the ACB does do around funding, around uh, when we look at things like ch changes in accessibility guidelines or uh, the, the PROAG, which uh, the pedestrian rights of way access guidelines, we're good at that stuff. What we need to do, and I think it happens, frankly, at the state level in most cases, and I think there are a few exceptions where it could be at the local level, maybe in like cities where you have some, some density, is we need to take that same legislative approach and we need to create an approach that looks kind of like it that's state specific at the state level. Because I will tell you, transportation issues right now, the ADA is probably not a place that people are going to be comfortable trying to open it up and change it. But states can do things. State legislatures in many cases are the body that created the regulations that govern your local transit authority. Most local transit authorities, especially the larger ones, are created by state law. They are regulated by state agencies. So you have the ability at the state level to create change through, your le through the legislative advocacy processes. So you have local chapters working at the local level, which is primarily working with the people who run service. Your state chapters can do a lot of things at the legislative level. For example, a few years ago, and it didn't last, it didn't survive the, the 20, uh, 20, 2008 reception, recession, the state of Washington for a while had legislation that, that, that did not allow transit agencies to charge more than the same fare for paratransit that they charge for bus and rail. I think that's gone away, but but it existed for a while, and it was a state law. Uh, those kinds, there are examples of those kinds of changes. They are generally at the state level. So I think there are things we can do as an organization. We need to work on them. They take effort, uh, but they are they are there for us. And I think Anthony did a really good job of kind of pointing out we're good at it at the federal level. We need to get good at it at the state and local level. Ron, can I make a comment? Sure. That? So this yeah. is Katie. Um, at the state level in Ohio, one of the things that we did is um, we were, you know, part of a, of a coalition that um, it, the, the Ohio affiliate of ACB, we joined on to a coalition of folks who were advocating for better transit around the state. This was not exclusive to people who were blind, but we were coincidentally the only, only blindness organization in the group, which was pretty cool. Um, but we were a part of the coalition that we went to the state house during the biennial budget and we talked and talked and talked to um, state officials, state legislators, state senators, um, gave public testimony, which if you've not done that, that is an experience unto itself. Um, but that's, you know, again, wrote letters, um, had conversations, but we joined forces with others. So if, you know, maybe your state has um, a, you know, a disability rights um, agency, every state does, um, you know, reaching out to them saying, is there anyone else working on this issue of transportation around the state? Um, I know in Ohio, we had a group um, at one point called All Aboard Ohio that was trying to do some work around rail initiatives and other transportation um, works. But it really is, you know, it's it's getting, you know, again, finding those connections in your, in your state, um, starting out with some of those more statewide agencies 
um, to, to find out where those connections are. So just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. I was actually going to call on you to talk about what you did in Florida with your state level FCB um, uh, trans, you know, legislative committee that you've been working on or advocacy or whatever it is. Uh, so I will answer that too, but um, <laughs> I want to piggyback on what Katie was saying and then throw a charge out to all of us. Um, one of the things that I needed to be better at, but um, we have implemented, we found a very sympathetic person in the county who feels, heard the stories, sees the data, understands what's happening. And so um, I invited this person to a couple of different community calls to hear to, to understand and, and to be able to use her language to translate her, our concerns and, and issues into language that when she's speaking with her coworkers and the higher ups, you know, a lot of us, we get passionate, we get, we get lost in the advocacy that we're doing and we forget to present it in the way that they're hearing it. So inviting folks from all, you know, all across your interactions to some of our meetings is a really good tool um, to answer your, uh, oh, their charge. This panel is one example. And I think on a global level, everything we hear need to take our knowledge back home to our states and to our local you know, chapters. We need to, you know, I'm planning on taking this panel to one of my month, I'm now the president of Miami Beach. Um, I'm going to take this panel and play this panel at one of our meetings. And then we're going to discuss, I might edit it down, of course, but um, you know, we need to take the knowledge that we have here back because that's, what's going to inspire folks. The biggest thing that we hear is I don't know what to do. You know, it's a big organization. Where do I start? This is a big task. Where do I start? Well, break it down and share the information. Um, what we did in, in Miami, it was really a three-pronged approach. Um, and, and the hardest part was getting the buy-in actually from the members of our community and the other communities that we were reaching out to and working in. I needed, we needed. <laughs> um, I, I was tasked with collating and keeping it all together, but we needed those data points. We needed those complaints. And the complaints were instrumental. They needed to be filed right. They needed to be filed with the right agency, not STS, not the transportation agency itself, but with the county. Um, and then, so that was the first prong, make, getting the buying, getting our folks to do the, the groundwork, to give us their stories in the form of actual data. Um, the second piece was the conversation going back and forth with the county, holding them accountable. You know, it's one thing to say, we have all these stories, we have all these, you know, all this supposed data that's floating around. But when you present it to them, story data, story data, story data, it's irrefutable at that point. And suddenly the tone of the conversation changes dramatically. Um, and of course, the third prong was reaching out beyond the scope of the disability community. Businesses, um, the governmental, uh, the uh, Florida Center for Government Accountability pointed me in so many directions. You know, of course, the media being the highlight of it. If you can, you know, the New York Post, the Miami Herald, the Washington uh, Post, you know, if you can get noticed enough to get, you know, an article somewhere there or um, on your local NPR, it changes the conversation a lot, too. Excellent. So I'm going to cut in because we could talk about this all day. And I want to leave. We have about 10 minutes left. This is Ray Campbell. I will actually be succinct for once. <laughs> Ray Campbell, Springfield, Illinois. You talked a lot about data collection. Where in that process does being able and knowing how to file FOIA requests come in? 
first off, FOIA requests um, are, I would not start with a FOIA request. Um, I would probably start, depending on the state you're in, I would start more informally. For example, if you're in Florida, uh, there's very strong state law that supports public information or public access to information. Uh, so it probably depends on the state you're in. FOIA is a federal requirement that agencies fall under. It's a little bit more rigorous and rigid. Um, I would start informally. And if you don't get anywhere, then you go to FOIA from there. Rick, you may unmute. How do we get folks to talk from, move it from a personal standpoint, like my ride didn't pick me up last week and I was really angry. How do we move that to global? Because I thought that Anthony really brought up a good point and I'd like him to answer this. And, uh, and by the way, I'm from Boynton Beach, Florida. Thank you. Well, I have just moved from the legislative chair to the access chair in Florida. So you and I will talk. But um, the answer that, to that question is you don't. You actually incorporate the personal story into the process. And the thing is, I can multitask like with the best of them, but I cannot expect everybody on my team and my chapter to, to be looking at it from a global perspective. So you break it up into parts. You have people that are responsible for certain parts of it. Who's going to collect the data? Who's going to collate the data? Who's going to, you know, marshal the stories? Who's going to reach out to border commissioners? I'm not going to list the whole process, but you break it up into pieces. You inspire folks to take a piece of it and be responsible for it. And you don't get rid of the personal. You just teach how to incorporate the personal into the larger picture. Anthony said it earlier, and I think someone else may have said it. Politicians, okay, sorry. Regulators, uh, media, they are all about data. Politicians are all about stories. They are both critical. Next comment uh, from here in the room. Do we have a hand? Yes, um, I'm Nero Shuth. I'm part of the Cleveland chapter. Here's one thing. I'm, I'm, I'm as well part of the Clevelanders for public transit, right? And think think with the future, right? And ride share is a way to go, right? Public transit and everywhere we go. Now, with that being said, I understand that we want to focus mainly locally. My, my thought is, why don't we focus nationally? Like, what if we make it where everywhere across the country, if you're Uber, if you're any form of disability, you can basically pay what the paratransit cost is to request a Lyft or Uber or whatever it is, and across the city, have a task force in D.C. and make it where 10% of vehicles could be accessible for wheelchair, so people with wheelchair can be able to have accessibility and on-demand rides as well. That, I mean, that's a great question. I'm going to just take it real quickly and then if, ask our panelists if anyone wants to add to it, and then we'll go to Zoom probably for our last question. Um, that it would require a change in federal law. And I think that's the thing about transportation, current law, both, both the ADA and the way transportation is funded is primarily leaves decision-making to the local authorities. So changing to what you are proposing, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually a very nice, simple, elegant solution. It would require a lot of changes in federal law, um, and I think most people, and you'd have to ask the uh, the federal experts, 
uh, think that that would be a very tough hill to climb, especially as you can see our effective Congress and effective executive branch working extremely well together. They don't get much done. So, yeah. So I think I think right now the, the belief is that it's better to try to solve these issues locally simply because the federal laws just really don't support a good solution. Does anybody want to add to that before we go to Zoom? Pat is going to go. And I would just say that one uh, the first question you want to ask is what kind of financial shape is the entire transit agency in? I know in Washington, D.C., we're facing a uh, financial cliff next year, $150,000 shortfall. So you have to be aware of that when you're looking and asking those questions. Uh, 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 you know, how how are you going? Uh, $750 million, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it would be nice with $750,000. $750 million shortfall in Washington, D.C. So you need to put your requests and you're thinking in terms of that bigger uh, project of how you're going to answer that question. Sharon, you may unmute. A quick question for Katie. Um, the service that you're using, you uh, do an hour before you need your ride. How do you manage with the return? Great question. So you serve, um, you can do it a couple ways. You can either schedule a return if you know what time you're obligation is is finished or there is a will call option and so when you set up the initial trip you would say i don't know about my return time but i'd like to set up a will call you call when you need the ride and you can wait 15 minutes up to an hour um i think one time when i used it for a doctor's appointment i waited about you know half an hour or 45 minutes Luckily, I was inside the doctor's office. It wasn't a problem. I got a lot of good reading done. Um, but, you know, you do have that option to set a will call pickup. Okay. Folks, we are out of time. Could you please just give a hand to our panelists? They were excellent. We have transportation sessions this afternoon. Please check those out and join them if your schedule permits. Um, I will be in the marketplace Tuesday and Wednesday. If you want to talk transportation, come find me at the Accessible Avenue table. And uh, thank you again. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, audience. Thank you, Zoom Clubhouse. Everybody have a good time. Enjoy your convention. Before we go, I will read the ending CEU code one uh, twice. And again, this is a five-digit code for those needing to write them down. I will repeat this number twice. One five five. Nine nine one five five nine nine.